This podcast is the sixth in the series produced on behalf of the British Society for Hematology, Hemostasis and Thrombosis Task Force, exploring laboratory aspects of hemostasis and thrombosis testing. During COVID-19 lockdown, this podcast is being recorded over Zoom, so I apologise in advance for any loss of quality. My name is Peter Baker. I'm a clinical scientist working in the Department of Hematology at the Oxford University Hospitals NHS Trust. I currently oversee the hemostasis and thrombosis testing based within four laboratories over three sites within the Trust. I originally trained as a biomedical scientist at Adam Brooks Hospital Cambridge in general haematology before moving to Oxford in 1998, transferring to the role of clinical scientist and laboratory lead for hemostasis. Since then, I've been involved in the provision of routine and diagnostic hemostasis testing for all aspects of haemophilia and thrombophilia. The haematology laboratories in Oxford provide haemostasis testing in a small district general hospital environment, a combined haematology biochemistry hot lab, as well as a full automated core combined laboratory operating 24-7. We also provide laboratory services for the Oxford Haemophilia and Thrombosis Centre, which is a registered haemophilia comprehensive care centre. My particular interest is in the role of implementation of new technology in the field of haemostasis and the challenges it brings in moving on the diagnosis and management of patients without losing the underpinning knowledge and science behind it. Over the years, I've seen many changes to coagulation testing and the equipment used to deliver it. The challenge facing all laboratories in the current environment is to provide meaningful, high-quality, cost-effective assay results for the service users within the constraints of limited national resources. This is underpinned by the evolution of external quality audits, such as those provided by the United Kingdom Accreditation Service, known as UCAS, working to benchmark laboratories against the International Organization Standard for Medical Laboratory Quality, referred to as ISO 15189. This has had the effect of driving up standards, but has had significant resource implications and applies equally to hemostasis laboratories as to any other discipline. Today, I'm presenting a summary of the recent British Society for Haematology guideline on the laboratory aspects of assays used in haemostasis and thrombosis, produced by the Haemostasis and Thrombosis Task Force. This is an amalgamation and update of two previous guidelines produced on fibrinogen measurement and laboratory assays by the Society in 2003 and 2013, respectively. The methodology employed by the writing team, including the literature search criteria, can be found in the appendix of the guideline. The range of assays and assay type discussions is designed to fit alongside other guidelines in the literature, and as such, particular areas such as lupus anticoagulant, D-dimer, platelet function, VW and DOAC assays will not specifically be mentioned, although there might be some overlap with other published material. First, I would like to talk about the pre-analytical factors that affect hemostasis testing, including those associated with the sample before and after it reaches the laboratory. Secondly, I will discuss the calibration and control of assays, including the generation of reference ranges. Next, I will mention the assays involved in the investigation of a bleeding and thrombotic tendency. And finally, finish with a brief mention of TTP and molecular testing. I'd like to start by talking about pre-analytical variables probably the largest symbol impact on the ability to generate meaningful hemostasis results is the impact of pre-analytical variables on assays. Although crucial to most areas of laboratory testing, 
It is particularly noticeable in hemostasis due to the nature of the blood components under investigation, as the fundamental point of hemostasis is to provide maintenance of vessel integrity. The process of collecting samples by vena puncture causes a direct challenge to the coagulation pathways. As often the process of sample collection is done away from the laboratories, it is out of their control and relies upon good education for phlebotomy staff as to the reasons behind routines and practices not always appreciated. Examples include order of draw with coagulation tubes being collected first if multiple tubes are being taken, avoiding air in the lines of butterfly needles with the subsequent generation of underfilled samples by the use of discard tubes, and the awareness of the impact of heparin in lines already in place in patients. A common phone call that comes into the laboratory is why haven't they processed the underfilled sample? In most cases, the manufacturers allow a 10% variation in fill before suggesting the sample is rejected. This level is marked on some manufacturers' tubes to prevent the is it, isn't it discussions. A recent development in automation is the improved level sensing, which is now provided by the instrument manufacturers during sample, removing the doubt as standardizing the approach to sample acceptance. If insufficient blood is collected when drawing a citrate coagulation tube, then the impact is to over-dilute the sample in anticoagulant with the potential of giving prolonged clotting times or reduced level of hemostatic components. The dilemma, which has been demonstrated many times in the literature, is that individual parameters are variably impacted by underfilled samples, and depending on the analyte and the level in the samples in the first place, underfilling may or may not have a significant impact. This is the argument that has been had for many years when samples have been difficult to collect, maybe from an infant or unable to be repeated, such as pre-transfusion, leaving the laboratories in an impossible position. The recommendation is therefore that underfilled samples are not accepted. The same effect is seen in patients with high hematocrits. The relative lack of plasma causing an over-dilution in the standard citrate level, leading to artificially prolonged results. This can, however, be counted by removing citrate from the tube before collected, although this requires prior knowledge of the hematocrit and breaking the sterile seal, removing the vacuum in the vacutainer system. The impact can quite often be variable from patient to patient, but should be considered, particularly for patients on warfarin, where prolonged baseline PTs could be present, making dosing problematic. Once the sample reaches the laboratory, the plan is to get them promptly spun for routine investigation of platelet-poor plasma, usually achieved by centrifugation at 1500 to 2000 G for 10 minutes. More recently, the advent of combined automated facilities incorporating track-based centrifugation shared with biochemistry testing has generated concerns about single spin speeds that are suitable to both. However, in most cases, the aim is to generate a cell-free sample for testing and single spin speeds um, are usually acceptable. Best confirmed locally for hemostasis is by checking platelet counts after spinning and checking they are at least less than 10 times 10 to the 9 per litre. If not significantly less, would help to rule out any impact on the assays being tested. I'd like to talk now about the specific types of assays available and to consider their setup and control. Current technology now means that there are many different automated platforms that can provide a wide range of assays using several underlying measuring systems. They often provide the focal point of hemostasis laboratories and produce results in a relatively short period of time with greater reproducibility than semi-automated platforms of the past. 
Still today, the detection system in many analyzers is based upon a change in light transmission associated with the onset of fibrin formation in an activated sample. Optical systems like this can be prone to interfering factors such as lipemia and hemolysis, as previously mentioned. An alternative is to use an endpoint detection based on the monitoring of a steel ball bearing in agitated plasma, looking for its capture in the fibrin formation. This is less prone to interference, although does depend on a minimum amount of fibrinogen to work reproducibly. The visualization trace of the optical endpoint systems has generated over the years new parameters identifying traits in samples as they clot. An example of this includes the work of Downey and colleagues in identifying the changes in optical clot waveforms on the biomarrow coagulation analyzer in the 1990s. APTT waveform votouts were attributed to early precipitation in the coagulation process of lipid CRP complexes and linked to sepsis severity. Since then, other manufacturers have identified similar disturbances to clock waveforms and incorporated them into informative flagging algorithms. Another use of the waveforms was the response of haemophilia patients to replacement therapies, which causes changes in waveforms and their mathematical first and second derivatives. However, many of these new parameters have not been universally adopted outside the labs and as such are often only used to provide internal validation of the clotting process. In summary then, either endpoint detection system can be employed. Many of the assays in use today are based upon comparison of sample analytes against a known calibration curve using a standard plasma with a universally adopted analyte level. This is often performed over a series of dilutions looking for a parallel line type comparison. As part of its validation, the accuracy and precision should be determined and can be conveyed to users to support interpretation. World Health Organization commercial calibrants are now available for a wide range of hemostatic analytes and via third party samples with traceable links to them can be used to monitor the accuracy and precision of local assays. Where there is a direct link to these calibrants, results can be reported in international units, moving away from the classic percentages widely used in hemostasis. These are used alongside frozen and lyophilized normal and pathological quality control material on a daily or batch basis to guarantee performance of the assay is maintained. Alongside internal quality control testing, laboratories should participate in external quality assurance schemes to compare performance against peer groups and different reagent manufacturer combinations. This comparability and traceability back to international standards provides the cornerstone of ISO 15189 validation. For commercial platforms, much of this traceability is provided by the supplier. However, new and rapidly developing assays may not have this level initiative and alternative forms of verification may need to be adopted. In the early days of an assay, and one which is particularly specialised or low use, it may be valuable to consider sample exchange between centres as a means of support and confidence in the results. When constructing calibration curves for an assay, it is desirable to maximise the measuring range by using a wide range of dilutions. Linearity needs to be identified, requiring a minimum of three assay points and often duplicate testing. It is recommended that sample measurement in clotting-based assays should also be performed at more than one dilution, as classically this is how inhibitors, whether specific or non-specific, can be identified. Care must be taken, though, as linearity is often not maintained at the ends and the extremes of curves, and it may be necessary to split calibrations into two, for example, high and low. Definition of linearity varies, 
but often the default on automated platforms is 20% between dilutions. Sometimes this is seen as too high and as an individual parameter, and other factors such as slope R value or test calibration ratios can be considered. Fresh calibration curves are ideal as conditions change between tests and run. However, if it's not cost effective, the long running debate is how often is it necessary to recalibrate. Laboratories processing larger numbers of samples should get a feel by participation in internal and external quality control. And as to the stability and drift of the assay, it's usually recognized that an absolute minimum calibration should be performed with changes in reagent and control lots. It's also necessary to establish a lower limit of detection, which can be performed by making doubling dilutions of the analyte in question, ideally an analyte deficient plasma, and identifying as to what point result can be observed compared to an assay of buffer only. This is the cutoff, with lower results then being recorded as less than this value. For example, less than one unit per deciliter in the case of clotting factors. Construction of local reference ranges and clinical cutoffs for laboratory assays is strongly recommended for the combination of analyzer and reagent being used. It is understood, though, that in many centers this is not realistic from a cost and logistical point of view. So rather just consisting of verification of existing ranges may also be provided. And as such, just using 20 to 40 samples from normal donors can be used for validation. Usually greater than 100 are required for establishment of new reference intervals. It must be noted that age, sex and blood group can sometimes impact on ranges and needs to be considered. The mean plus or minus two standard deviations using log transformation for non-normally distributed data is a common definition of normality and a good starting point for a reference range. Although this may be difficult and different from clinical cutoffs, which may require extended statistical evaluation, example being the negative predictive cutoff used in D-dimer estimation. I'd now like to talk about the measurement of assays used to investigate a bleeding tendency. Classically, investigations are based around the one-stage clotting assays used to quantitate individual coagulation factors. In most cases, the PT and APTT can be used as a base, although it's important to understand the composition of these reagents and have an awareness of their impact on the performance. Factors 2, 5, 7 and 10 are usually measured on a PT-based assay, while factors 8, 9, 11, 12, high molecular weight kininogen and precalocrine, the APTT. Modifying the incubation time of the APTT has previously been reported as helping to highlight contact factor deficiencies and can be used where there isn't ready access to deficient plasmas, although that will be subject to local validation. Common pathway factors 2, 5 and 10 can also be measured with an APTT-based system or snake venom activator-based assay system. And some of these will be required and described as being necessary when identifying some rarer variations. Sensitivity to contact factor deficiencies will be markedly different depending on whether the APTT reagent is based upon allergic acid, silica, or kaolin as a source of activator. Similarly, phospholipid composition will impact on sensitivity to antiphospholipid antibodies. This can be used to an advantage in lupus anticoagulant screening protocols using two opposing APTT reagent sensitivities and highlighting differences between them. However, it must be noted that on occasions, patients will have prolongation of their PT due to antiphospholipid antibodies, which may make anticoagulation monitoring of vitamin K antagonists more difficult 
particularly if impacting on the patient's point of care INR device. These sensitivity differences can also extend to heparin and direct anti-10A anticoagulants. So again, there needs to be an awareness of local analyzer and reagent combinations, although now there are many reports in the literature pertaining to this. One-stage clotting assays require the diluting of patient samples in factor-deficient plasma to normalize all other parameters. Commercial sources can be from immunoabsorbed or depleted normal plasma or congenitally deficient patients. Historically, all of these have had their own limitations, but fundamentally should fit the acceptance criteria by having a residual value level of less than one unit per deciliter, whilst maintaining greater than 50 units per deciliter of all other clotting factors, including von Willebrand factor. This ideally should be retested with each introduction of a new lot. The introduction of chromogenic factor assays, predominantly factors eight and nine, have had a significant effect on hemostasis testing. There are two stage assays in purified systems where patient's plasma is added to purified cofactors to convert factor 10 to 10A. In a second step, color is generated with a 10A sensitive chromogenic substrate with the amount of 10A in the sample being proportionate to the initial factor eight and factor nine concentration. In most cases, the results from the chromogenic assays are equivalent to their one stage counterparts. However, discrepancies between them in both directions have been noted with particular mutations being described. Newly diagnosed mild or moderate haemophilia patients should be tested by both means to obtain reliable baselines and clinicians should be aware of the local methods in use. The other benefit of the chromogenic assays is their relative insensitivity to lupus anticoagulants over a one-stage assay, so they often run at a single dilution with no need for parallel result checking, although there may be an impact from anti-10A-based DOACs which still need to be excluded. Initially, the chromogenic assays looked as if they were going to provide a single assay platform for newly breaking treatments for both haemophilia A and B. However, the introduction of newly modified molecules and modifications has meant that in practice this has not been possible. It is outside the scope of this guideline to discuss these. Suffice it to say that clinicians need to make their local laboratories aware of the products in use, and laboratories need to be aware of individual reagent combination requirements. Most recently, the bispecific factor eight mimetic antibody HEM-Libra as a haemophilia A treatment option has had the greatest impact on testing with discrepancies between human and bovine chromogenic testing kits. Product-specific calibrators have, to some extent, bypassed this, but the variable results with different reagents has again increased the need for awareness of local laboratory assay configuration and cautious interpretation. There is now a growing raft of literature available guiding users through the alternative monitoring options. Another reason for bleeding investigations may be the suspicion of an acquired inhibitor, usually first encountered with a prolonged screening PT or APTT, followed up with a normal plasma mixing studies. A 50-50 mix of patient normal plasma that corrects back into the reference range suggests either a factor deficiency or a time-dependent inhibitor and potentially excludes immediate acting inhibitors whether factor-specific, such as factor nine, or non-specific, such as lupus anticoagulant. Formulas reported by Chang and Rosner have been shown to help distinguish these groups during mixing studies. However, no one method has been proven to be definitive, and further investigations are usually required. It's important to note that factor eight inhibitors tend to be slow acting, so potentially correcting an APTT mix in the first instance only to become prolonged after incubation. However, at various potencies, factor eight inhibitors can be seen to act immediately, especially if the mix at any stage is delayed during the testing process. 
Alternatively, at higher potencies, they can degrade factor eight in the deficient plasma of the other factor assays, leading to non-parallel results in factor nine and 11 assays, for instance, making interpretation unclear. Quantitation of the specific factor inhibitor should be with the Bethesda-style assay, standardized with the Nijmegen modification, including preheat treating if the sample has residual factor. With a more recent availability of a combinant porcine factor eight, as a treatment option, it should now be repeated with porcine normal plasma as well to quantify the level of cross-reactivity of the antibody. Factor VIII antibodies can be further confirmed and characterized by the use of an ELISA if there is any doubt about its specificity or kinetics. Acquired deficiencies of other coagulation factors have been described and can be distinguished from congenital deficiencies with mixing studies and Bethesda-like teetering. In some cases, there may be an overlap between specific and non-specific inhibitors, such as lupus anticoagulant and acquired factor II deficiency. Further detailed technical guidance on aspects of inhibitor quantitation is available in the literature. When describing investigations of bleeding tendency, often fibrinogen testing is overlooked, possibly due to its acute phase nature, leading to a range of values in many underlying conditions, such as sepsis, malignancy and trauma and the relative rarity of inherited conditions manifesting as A, hypo or dysfibrinogenemia. Often, however, the outcome of the inheritance is a mild to moderate bleeding tendency or a thrombotic tendency, in which case no clinical phenotype is seen at all. A large proportion of the inherited conditions, therefore, are identified by chance, and often there is a robust fibrinogen activity assay readily available on most coagulometers. The class fibrinogen technique uses a relatively strong thrombin, not sensitive to therapeutic heparin levels to clot a dilution of patient plasma. Absolute values can be read off of a dilution curve created from a recognized fibrinogen standard. High levels of fibrinogen degradation products or direct thrombin inhibitors may impede this reaction, leading to an artificially low value being reported. As the class assay is activity-based, it could be used in conjunction with a fibrinogen antigen ELISA to distinguish between hypo and dysfibrinogenemia. Historically, fibrinogen antigen ELISAs were costly and time-consuming, but it is now possible to use immunoturbometric assays, similar to an automated D-dimer on routine analyzers, to make them more cost-effective. It has been known for some time that the optical endpoint routine coagulometers could demonstrate a relationship between the change in light transmission during the clotting process of its routine assays and the amplitude could be directly related to fibrinogen concentration. This so-called derived fibrinogen has long been seen as a free fibrinogen, which could be added to routine clotting screens to add some value. Many reports in the literature have given caveats to its use, with underlying conditions make it fluctuate substantially. On this basis, the guidelines suggest that the derived fibrinogen is not recommended for clinical use. However, it may have value forming part of an internal visual validation process of sample quality. Globally, the effects of fibrinogen and fibrinolysis can also be studied with the TEG or ROTEM type devices and that, that monitor whole blood and plasma clot tensile strength. Reports in the literature document its successful use in rationalizing blood product consumption. Further information can be found in the recent BSH guideline from 2018. Finally, in the techniques used to investigate a bleeding tendency are the assays associated with factor 13 detection. Historically, the semi-quantitative clot solubility technique was available. This involved exposing patients' clotted plasma to the disrupting agents urea or acetic acid, measuring their decay. 
this was difficult to standardize and suffered from large interlaboratory variation. For this reason, although it's still the only available assay in many developing countries, the ISTH Scientific and Standardization Committee recommended it's not used. Alternatively, there are several quantitative assays which have been adopted for automated platforms, the preferred assay being the ammonia release reaction in the presence of factor 13, which has a reported automated sensitivity down to between 5 and 10 international units per deciliter. However, the assay also has a background detection of factor 13 independent ammonia release, which needs to be subtracted by means of a reagent blank when levels of the patient drop below 20 international units per deciliter. It's particularly at these levels that this impacts, and these are likely to be clinically significant. Alongside the automated activity assay, similar to fibrinogen, it may be beneficial to measure factor 13 antigen by ELISA to help differentiate between factor 13 A and B subtype defects. More recently, the wider availability of molecular techniques has led to the ability to screen for genetic defects in specific regions known to code for the hemostatic proteins. Factor 13 is a good example where distribution of factor 13A and B subunit defects can be characterized. Historically, the investigation of fibrinolytic components would be considered in the workup of a bleeding disorder investigation. The combination of the rarity of these disorders and the diurnal fluctuation of levels has meant that only a small number of parameters have been maintained that could be considered in the presence of a bleeding presentation with normal clotting factors. Handling and processing of these samples is crucial, so assaying should be done by prior arrangement with the laboratories to maximise the potential for meaningful results. Alpha-2 antiplasmin is an example of this, with deficiency leading to a potentially clinically significant bleeding phenotype. Commercial chromogenic assays are available for automated platforms and should be considered if all other tests appear normal. Similarly, the other fibrinolytic component plasminogen activator inhibitor, so-called PI-1, can be measured with an automated chromogenic assay if other more common assays appear normal. The limitation with PI-1 is that levels of near zero can appear in the normal population, requiring an antigen level to also be performed for confirmation. This again may be an example where genetic investigation is becoming more valuable. I'd like now to move on to the investigation of a thrombotic tendency. This is in a similar fashion to fibrinolytic investigations that's evolved over the years to minimise the components being tested to provide the most cost-effective screening whilst maintaining the widest range of components covered. For patients with a personal history of VTE, antiphospholipid screening would also be performed. This is outside the scope of this guideline and can be found in other BSH task force publications. Thrombophilia screening requires an experienced scientific and clinical interpretation, taking into account the factors likely to influence the individual factors being tested, including acute phase testing, anticoagulants and underlying conditions. For that reason, it's recommended to start with a routine clotting screen, considering a thrombin time and fibrinogen estimation. These provide baseline confidence in the sample validity, particularly with the introduction of DOACs into routine practice, which may not always be detected in the PT and APTT, as vitamin K antagonists have been in the past. Also, abnormal sample results should be repeated on more than one occasion with new samples for confirmation. The assays considered in this recommendation for the basic thrombophilia screen consist of antithrombin, protein C, protein S, and in combination with screening for prothrombin 20210 and the factor V Leiden mutations. The benefit of these assays is that they are now readily available on automated coagulometers, 
with a range of suppliers available providing simple and precise techniques. Antithrombin can be quantitated by its action on factors 2A and 10A in commercial kits. It is recommended to avoid human 2A as the target as there will potentially be interference from the other natural anticoagulant heparin cofactor 2. Apart from that, human or bovine 10A and bovine 2A are acceptable for basing assays on. All of these have the ability to detect either type 1 or type 2 deficiencies with the help of a follow-on antithrombin antigen assay. In some cases, the dysfunctional antithrombin associated with heparin binding defects may require modification of the activity assay to highlight them, usually by shortening the incubation times. This information is readily available in the literature and reagent suppliers. It's of no surprise that therapeutic 2A and 10A inhibitors are likely to impact on the assay and therefore anticoagulants of this nature should be excluded prior to testing to prevent possible overestimation. Antithrombin antigen assays can be measured with ELISAs or more recently immunoturbometric assays to help differentiate type 2 defects. This was originally useful for distinguishing the heparin binding defects as they are often thought to have a lesser clinical significance. As mentioned earlier, the accessibility to molecular screening makes the investigation of the antithrombin gene a more appealing route for confirmation of deficiencies. The mainstay of the protein C assay has become the chromogenic assay based upon conversion of protein C to activated protein C by the snake venom derived protac, which then induces a color change in the chromogenic substrate. This again is readily processed on an automated coagulometer, although in some acute circumstances, reports have shown non-specific activation requiring background blanking to be in place. Clotting-based protein C assays can also be performed and in rare circumstances may be the only way to detect some subtypes of protein C deficiency. As with the other clotting-based assays, there is a requirement to dilute in deficient plasma across a range of dilutions. Raised clotting factors such as factor eight or the presence of factor five Leiden have been reported as impacting on the results, as do vitamin K antagonists and direct oral anticoagulants. Protein C antigen levels can also be measured, although previous guidance has suggested that differentiating between type 1 and type 2 deficiencies is of limited value. Again, molecular genotyping may now be of greater value. Protein S has historically provided the greatest challenge of the thrombophilia components to measure accurately. The isolation and quantification of free protein S antigen from its stored form, which is bound to the C4B binding protein, requires a chemical extraction step. The advent of a monoclonal antibody to free protein S has allowed the assay to be converted to an immunoturbometric platform suitable for automation requiring no pretreatment step. Total protein S consisting of bound and free protein S is also relatively straightforward to measure with the use of ELISA and can follow up for confirming low free protein S antigen. Activity-based assays for free protein S are notoriously difficult to standardize in a clot-based assay in the presence of activated protein C. As with other clot-based assays, multiple dilutions may help to standardize the poor precision that can be encountered. However, the activity assay historically was the only way to identify type 2 protein S deficiency, although, as with other components, genetic analysis is now attractive. The most recent addition to the thrombophilia screening panel was the addition of prothrombin and factor V mutational analysis. The prothrombin G20210A variant is associated with persistently raised levels of prothrombin and has been linked to a mild to moderate thrombotic tendency. There are several PCR-based systems available to screen for hetero and homozygosity, 
many of which can be combined with screening for the factor V Leiden mutation, known as which causes resistance to activated protein C. The original screening for factor V Leiden was two duplicate APTT-based clotting assays, with and without the addition of activated protein C. Reduced relative ratio being associated with hetero and homozygosity. Predilution of the patient sample in factor V deficient plasma helps to standardize the APTTs with a choice of activators, including 10A-based Russell's Viper Venom. Regardless, the assays are known to be sensitive to DOACs and DTIs, and these need to be excluded prior to testing. However, if molecular testing of factor V lighting is being performed, then it is usually unnecessary to perform the clotting-based assays too. A number of previously reported rare low-instance factor V mutations will be identified in the APC clotting assay, but not in the factor V Leiden genotyping. Using this approach, these will go undetected. I'd like to finish off by briefly mentioning a couple of areas where new techniques are still emerging, where I believe we are still yet to see their full impact. Firstly, the evolution of testing of the VW cleaving protease ADAMS TS13 in the diagnosis of TTP. Its detection and quantitation with a limited number of specific commercial chromogenic and fluorogenic aliases for activity and inhibitor levels have inadvertently given a uniform approach to testing across the country. The limitation to date has been the time taken to perform these and the financial and labor costs involved. However, when judged in comparison to the cost of patient plasmapheresis, it becomes more attractive. Requesting protease testing, however, out of routine hours still generates some difficult discussions between laboratory and clinician. Although hopefully this is about to change with the introduction to the market of automated quantitative and semi-quantitative technologies. Several chemiluminescent endpoint analyzers now offer the ability to obtain activity results in under an hour from walkaway platforms, making it very appealing compared to the manual ELISA methods. Alongside the availability of NIBSC standards for ADAMS TS13, only time will tell if they fulfill their potential and maintain the cross-trust compatibility that we currently have. And finally, the impact of rapid high-throughput molecular testing across all disciplines will have a continually increasing effect on hemostasis screening in the future. Currently, the recommendation is that it's used alongside phenotypic laboratory assays, possibly to guide prenatal diagnosis or identify affected relatives of abnormal individuals. Genetic screening is unlikely to identify clinically significant abnormalities in patients with normal phenotypic assays. As the cost of this technology comes down, I think it will become more widely available to centres. So in summary, I've discussed the British Society for Haematology guideline on the laboratory aspects of assays used in haemostasis and thrombosis produced by the Haemostasis and Thrombosis Task Force. I've discussed the pre-analytical factors that affect haemostasis testing in the laboratory. Secondly, I've discussed the control and calibration of assays, including the generation of reference ranges. I've then mentioned the assays associated with bleeding and thrombotic investigations, and finally the approach to newer areas, including TTP diagnosis and the role of molecular testing. Further information on any aspect of this guideline can be found in the literature, particularly the ISTH and UKHCDO publications. For assay-specific guidance, I would suggest the manufacturer's websites or information supplied with the reagents in the pack inserts. Alternatively, their performance can be investigated through UK NECRAS coagulation. I'd like to end by thanking you for listening and would invite listeners to check out the other podcasts on offer on the British Society for Haematology website. <laughs>